Isaiah chapter 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies and never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your Saviour comes. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we come to the Lord's word, let us uh, pray together. Father, we thank you for this day, this opportunity to meet together as your people in this place, and we thank you for this opportunity to hear you speak to us again uh, through the prophet Isaiah, and we pray indeed that you would speak, and we pray you'd give us uh, ears to hear, minds to understand what you would uh, speak to each one of us, hearts to receive that word and to live in its light. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll know the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never harm me. And uh, I would imagine that most of us, if not all of us, will know that that is, of course, rubbish. Uh, that names have extraordinary power. Names have great 
power. The names that we give ourselves or the names that we are given, the labels that we give ourselves, the labels that we are given, do not just stay on the surface. Very often they work their way in, work their way into our hearts, where they begin to define us. They begin to create an identity for us. And therefore, they begin to shape the way that we are seen, the way that we're seen by others, the way, of course, that we're seen by ourselves. And therefore, of course, they begin to profoundly shape the way we live. They work their way in, and as they do so, they work their way out in the way that we live. How many people live under and live out of the shadow of a word or a label that has been spoken over them or they have spoken, uh, if you like, from their subconscious to themselves? For instance, it's easy, isn't it, in our battle with a particular sin to begin to let that sin name us, to begin to let that sin label us. When I lose my temper again, very easy for me to say, well, that's me, I am bad-tempered. That is me. Of course, as I begin to do that, what I begin to do is set those spiritual, uh, my spiritual horizons, my spiritual expectations are lowered as I let that particular sin define me. Of course, in less obvious ways, it's interesting, I've done quite a few times now through the Church of England and other ways, you have to do these personality um, survey things, and uh, I always come out as an introvert, um, and um, consistently as an introvert, and okay, that's uh, helpful in some ways. It is helpful in some ways to, be, uh, to know that about myself. But I've got to be very careful. I don't allow words like introvert to name me such as they become the real me, if you like. They, they have the final word on me. It has been interesting as I prepared this sermon, I've thought about that one in particular, how many times I have actually excused being sinfully short with someone, not particularly friendly in a situation with newcomers or whatever it might be, and have I excused it on the grounds that, well, I'm an introvert? Now, that might tell me where my particular personality, which way I'm weighted towards it. In fact, it will alert me of where sin might particularly grab hold of me. But it, I can't use it to excuse my sin. We'll come back to that. Because it's not the final word on me. Of course, we think of derogatory, much more derogatory labels that people are given. How many people live under the shadow and live out of the shadow of words like, well, you're hopeless, or you're a nerd, or you're a burden? or whatever it might be, words that have been given to them by friends or so-called, or family, or society. Because it's not just people, is it, who name us, society names us, culture names us. Uh, words are spoken by advertisers, uh, as it were. The airbrushed images of women, in particular, speak volumes to us, and particularly, I would imagine, to our young women, labeling them as beautiful only insofar as they match up to some computerized non-reality. For most of us, at some time, and to some extent, I would imagine we have acted in a way that was unhealthily driven by a name or a label that someone has given us, or we have given ourselves, or we have uh, uh, had sort of implied by the culture around us. And the uh, authority, the more authority we give those words, the deeper they go and the greater their effect. But the good news of Isaiah 62 and elsewhere is that we do not need to be stuck living under the shadow of names and labels that we are given by our culture or the people around us, our peer group, or even our own subconscious. For 
Isaiah 62, God has sought us like a suitor. And he delights to give his people new names. Uh, and then the names that are not just to sit on the surface, they are names that are designed to sink in and to take hold of our hearts and to remind us of the fact that in him, with these new names, come a new potential, a new way of living. Come with me then to Isaiah 62, page 748, 749. What is the context here? Well, Isaiah is speaking to Israel, and it seems as if Israel is um, laboring under names that have been given to her by her enemies. Isaiah uh, foresees uh, uh, Israel's defeat in battle. He foresees her living in exile far from the promised land. And she is being called names. She is being called, did you notice, deserted? She is being called desolate. God's people deserted. God's place desolate. Jerusalem empty of people and her people abandoned by God. That is the name she is being called by her victors and her captors. And the danger, of course, is that she will believe those names. The danger is, therefore, that she will allow those names to identify her and to define her and will start to live in the light of those names, which will be spiritually hugely destructive for Israel. Deserted and desolate. And the danger is she will start to live as one that is hopeless and faithless. But we know, of course, as we've read uh, the rest of uh, the message of Isaiah and uh, Isaiah's listeners uh, ought to know that her defeat is not a sign of God's absence. In fact, it's a sign of God's presence. His presence actually at this time to punish her sin. And that behind the evil plans and purposes of her captors, in fact, lies the good plans and purposes of God. After her punishment for sin, God is going to ride into her rescue. He's going to turn her situation around. He's going to change her status. He's going to restore her dignity. She's going to, he's going to change her nature such that she'll never be disgraced in this way again. He's going to cause Israel, if you like, to rise and shine in righteousness and glory. And all of that is summarized there in verse 2. Have a look. He says this, the Lord, the nations uh, now calling you names will then see your righteousness and your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. A new name, a new status, and with it a new way of living. All of this God will give. God's people no longer deserted, but Hephzibah, delighted in. No longer desolate, but Beulah, meaning married. When it says that God delights in his people and marries the land, the metaphor speaks of God bringing himself and his people and their place together in an indissoluble bond, together forever. And the nations will see God's work in his people. They will see them living out their new God-given names. They'll see a people being faithful as those married to God, fruitful as those in whom God delights. They will live as righteous and glorious and the nations will one day acknowledge no longer will they be able to say deserted, desolate? Because the nations will see that she is indeed God's beloved and married. 
When is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Well, we get a little clue, don't we, in verse 11. Have a look. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your Savior comes. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Salvation is going to come and it's going to come in the form of a person. And he comes with reward and recompense, this new name. He's going to come and he's going to seek his people like a suitor and make them a beloved people. Redeemed and set apart, holy and special to the Lord. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem some six, seven hundred years later, seven hundred years later, he rides in fulfillment of these very words. After the service, uh, flick up Matthew 21, verse 4. You'll see there that when, they, uh, sends, when Jesus sends the, uh, the, donkey, uh, the disciples to get the donkey, Matthew quotes this and he says this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. So Matthew knows that as Jesus gets the donkey and rides into Jerusalem, he does so in fulfillment of many passages, but in this passage in particular, Isaiah 62. That's what we celebrate today. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he doesn't come, as Dan said, to rid Israel of the Romans. He comes to do something incomparably greater. He comes to give his people a new name. And with it, a new life to lead. And with that, a new power to live it. He comes to deal with sin that we might be a people in whom God can delight. He comes to seek us as a suitor that he might be our groom and we might be his bride. And I want to suggest this morning uh, that these are words supremely of comfort. There's a little challenge here. We may finish with that. But these are words supremely of comfort. They're comforting because they free us from old names. These words free us from old names. When I look at the cross this Easter, what does the cross say to me? It says many things to me. But it says at least this. It says, God has sought me. God has sought me and he has laid down his life to make me his own. And because of that, the cross says to me, I am God's beloved. God delights in me. And it says, thirdly, by faith in him, I am betrothed to Christ. He has set me apart for himself at the cost of his own life. God has sought me. God delights in me. And I am betrothed to him. I have new names, beloved and bride of Christ. And friends, the work of faith, and it is work, as we'll see in a minute, hard work at times, but the work of faith is to believe those names. It's to let those names have my heart so that they will have my life. It's to live in the light of those names, to not just let those names sit on the surface, but to work their way in so that I can live them out. So important, I go back to the battle with sin. Somebody once said, I thought very helpfully, that sin often presents itself as the real me. Sin often presents itself when it's tempting me as the real me. When I'm tempted to lose my temper, you know, I'm bad tempered. That's the real me, actually. You know, the way I've been raised, whatever it is, it's my character, it's in my genes, I'm just a bad tempered man. 
or uh, I am addicted to pornography. That is why I keep yeah, struggling with this. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm an addict. And when we use labels like that, the danger is they define us. They define us. They create an identity out of which we live. But Isaiah 62 and elsewhere says that they are not my name. Bad-tempered, addict, that is not my name. They are not fundamentally and ultimately what is true of me. I mustn't let them define me. I am redeemed. I am set apart. I am beloved. I am the bride of Christ. Those are my names. God has given me those names, so they trump everything. Those are my names. That is my potential in Christ. I may struggle with a bad temper. That may be an area of sin that I have a particular struggle with for various reasons. I might struggle with pornography. But that is not my name. That is not what defines me. That is not my identity. I am a bride, a beloved bride of Christ. And that is my destiny too. And that is how Christ is at work in me in the meantime between those two poles of who I am now and what I will one day fully be then. And that makes all the difference when I'm tempted, when I'm facing sin. What is the real me? And therefore, what is my potential in this situation? It's not easy to allow God to define us rather than the words that have been spoken to us by ourselves or by those around us. Allowing our God-given identities to replace old identities, uh, old destructive identities. Old habits die hard, of course. Old ways of seeing ourselves die hard. It's even true, I think, to say that old ways of seeing ourselves that were destructive still become, over time, slightly comfortable. And so we still slightly cling to them, even though we know they're doing us damage. And that is why I said the work of faith is work. It's hard work. Sometimes it's difficult to see that God delights in us, or to know that. Sometimes it's difficult to know and believe ourselves to be betrothed to Christ. And that is because, as Simon reminded us last week, I think it was, or the week before last, I can't quite remember. He reminded us that we are in-betweeners, that we live between who we are now and what we will one day be. So for instance, Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 will say that we are betrothed to Christ right now, but we await the marriage ceremony when Christ returns. And you can read about that in Revelation 21 and 22. Now, being betrothed in biblical times was much, being engaged, as I say, was much stronger then than it is now. It's much closer to marriage. Essentially, you were married. But it, but it wasn't yet consummated, and there was a ceremony to begin that process of uh, betrothal, and then you had a ceremony later on uh, in which the marriage was, uh, after was consummated. And so we live in bes- between times. We are betrothed to Christ, but we await the consummation that is to come. And Tom Wright said this. I think it's very helpful when we don't necessarily feel yet uh, beloved or the bride of Christ. He says this, learning to believe something is true of us when it doesn't feel true of us is an essential part of being a Christian. It's absolutely right. Learning to believe something is true of us when it doesn't necessarily feel true is an essential part of being a Christian. In other words, it is always the battle to let God's voice be a louder voice, to let God's voice define us and not the voices we hear around us, not the voices we hear within us. 
uh, I was made aware recently of a, a talk that was given by a, gr a group called True Plus. True is a book, uh, some of our year six girls uh, study it, and there's a group run under the auspices of the Oxford School's chaplaincy called True Plus, which is for those that are older than year six, and they meet three times a year, and they have a talk. And recently they had a talk on body image and the labels that our culture puts on uh, people, uh, particularly young girls. And the, the craft was a mirror. They were all given a mirror, and on that mirror they had to write something uh, from the scriptures, uh, names and words that the Lord speaks to us, and how he defines what true beauty is. So some wrote, for instance, Proverbs 31, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Others wrote from the Psalms, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I thought it was a lovely thing. What a lovely idea. So there's a mirror, and as you look at yourself and you're hearing all the words that our culture speaks on what beauty is and what beauty isn't, what have you got on your mirror? You've got God's word. In other words, you're giving God's word every opportunity to speak a louder word. Every opportunity to name and define you rather than the culture around you. What a lovely example. It's not easy, this work of faith. That's why God has given us each other, by the way. That's why he calls us into community. We're supposed to be walking alongside each other in this and helping us live under and live out God's names for us rather than some of the destructive ones we may have heard in the past or in the present. By the way, uh, you were sent with Dan's email recently, uh, our pastoral care leaflet. It's a great thing, by the way, to be doing this in house groups and one-to-ones and prayer triplets, walking with each other, praying with each other, talking with each other. It may be that you want someone to speak to at a little bit more length, at a little bit more depth to pray with, uh, the pastoral care leaflet, there are 40 or 50 printed at the back. They also came with Dan's email. This will tell you who to speak to uh, about. If you'd like to pray with somebody a little bit more uh, length and depth about these issues, we'd be delighted to speak and to pray with you. Ultimately, the battle of faith is won or lost according to the value that we ascribe to the speaker of the names. Do we value culture's words or friends or family's words, whatever they might be, or do we value the Lord's words above all. It is a great comfort. It's a challenge too. As the betrothed of Christ, we are to be faithful to him. Uh, but you can think about that. We'll pass that by. Let me finish. The question is, how do we see ourselves? How do we see ourselves? And the answer we give will have a profound effect on the way that we live. It will affect the way that we live. It will affect us physically. It will affect us emotionally. It will affect us spiritually. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he came to do much more than improve our physical circumstances. He came to give us new names. God-given names. God-given status. A God-given power to live out those names. We are the beloved brides of Christ in him. That is who we are in Christ. That is the life he leads us into. And the battle of faith is to believe that and in the power of the Spirit to live it. May God give us the grace so to do. Amen.